When the world gives you lemonades, make lemons. Well, that's what they say. I say, when the world shakes, make milkshakes. But the question is, if you make a milkshake and it brings all the boys to the yard, just who exactly gets to drink that milkshake? Would it not be the strongest economy in the world? And more importantly, if you want to make sure that everyone gets their fair and equitable share of that shake, well, it would be best that you would become a woke high priest X of intersectional magic to make sure that the sins of the past thousand years and the forefathers for the past thousand years are exacted upon you, your children, and everyone else's children. For how long? Well, for forever. Because justice, justice, oh, sweet justice, can never fully be served. The sins of the past generations can never fully be atoned for. We can never quite fully reach equality as long as there are people in the world. Why? Because people truly are the virus. But we must remember, we must remember that this world that we live in, it's merely an illusion. And whatever you daydream in your idle hours, once you own nothing and are happily plugged into the VR matrix of the safe place called the internet, whatever you daydream in that safe internet place, it will become your reality. And anyone who dares present a fact or truth that shatters your reality, which is an illusion because reality is an illusion. So if anyone shatters your illusion with another illusion, That person, yeah, they're a bigot. Hey, it's Lucas Scrobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Scrobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future, episode 301. (laughs) September 29th, 2022. Thanks for being here on the show. I am still just blown away every time that uh, we hit a milestone like episode 300, episode 301. Um, blown away by a couple of a couple of reasons. One, that you're you're still listening. That blows me away. And two, that I'm still doing this. Uh, it really is the best the best part of my week. And I'm just so glad that you get to that you choose to join in with me because truly. There's so many options out there of what you can be listening to, and it means so much that you choose to listen to this show. Well, I hope you enjoyed last episode, episode 300, where we did a little montage of some of some of my memorable moments, moments that I remember from the first 300 episodes kind of scattered throughout. And it's, I have found it interesting personally, probably at the, the scope and the trajectory of how the show has changed over the years and will continue to change over the years, even as we enter into a a new uh, century of shows. We're through the zero hundreds and the one hundreds and the two hundreds, and we're on to the three hundreds. Well, today we have a a great show lined up. We're going to be talking about milkshakes. We're going to be talking about wokeness, and we're going to be talking about daydreaming and idle-mindedness and how that truly could be a, a, a dangerous trap for so many of us. And that's in our, our Weaver and Loom section, so make sure you stick around for that. But this week, 
the British pound tanks against the U.S. dollar. There is a, a graph that is going around of the U.S. dollar in the last number of weeks skyrocketing in value and the Canadian dollar, Australian dollar, the euro, the British pound, and the Japanese yen just dropping to the floor. The British pound was in free fall on Monday and, and sank to a record low against the U.S. dollar as investors rushed to sell currency and government bonds in a demonstrating skepticism over the new prime minister's uh, Liz Truss's, Truss's economic plans, which include large tax cuts funded by steep increasing in government borrowing. It's from Al Jazeera. So what's happening is in the UK, they have economic uncertainty. The whole globe, the whole globe, as we know, has economic uncertainty. But in in the UK, it is exacerbated, especially in Europe, as the war is still still raging on. And it's causing economic problems in Europe, high inflation in Europe. It's causing energy problems in Europe. We've discussed that, especially with this move to green energy. They have hamstrung themselves because they won't they won't use uh, energy sources like clean coal, energy sources like uh, nuclear power. They're moving away from all those things. Instead, they're deciding to deforest forests turn it into pebbles, ship it across the ocean, and burn trees uh, and, and call it renewable energy because technically the carbon's out of the ground since the carbon was already in a tree. Uh, makes no sense to me, but that's what's happening. So it's causing all of these energy crisis problems in Europe, uh, which conflates with the global economic crisis that was really brought on by the the choices that was made during COVID. But Al Jazeera goes on to say that the biggest U.S. rivals have shot themselves in the foot. Here I'm thinking of Russia's invasions of Ukraine and China's zero, zero COVID policy that has disrupted growth. The U.S. allies are having serious struggles. Japan is the only one of the G10 nations not to raise interest rates. China actually cut interest rates recently. Europe is on the verge of a recession, and the UK's new government has stirred crisis talks with a fiscal stimulus, adding to its current deficit. So what happens is people are looking to the U.S. dollar as a place to store wealth. Now, America as well has been in its own crisis. We've had 10, 9% inflation. And the Fed is working to slow inflation. One of the ways that they're working to slow inflation is by raising interest rates. And when you raise interest rates, especially when other countries are cutting interest rates, because so when you cut interest rates uh, on a federal bond, what you're doing is you're encouraging, you're encouraging borrowing because you can borrow cheap money, which that encourages people to act in the economy and stimulate the economy, which that then causes a higher cash flow. And this is what you want to stimulate your economy if it's struggling. Well, right now, America, even though their economy is struggling, we have enormous interest rates. We want to slow those interest rates down. And so one way that you do that is by you raise, the Fed raises interest 
as interest raises, people say, hmm, I'm not going to borrow money from the government. And then investors say they look at the bonds and they say, hey, I can loan money to the government and I'm going to get a better interest rate on that. And that is one of the things that's causing the U.S. dollar to grow stronger. In the midst of this, it's causing the U.S. economy to slow. We're, we're heading to a recession. I was talking to a friend of mine in eastern Tennessee, eastern Nashville, excuse me, and he was saying that in the last month, home listings have gone up 11-fold, which it's it's this, a little bit of a litmus test of, of saying that the housing market is in a decline and in a collapse. If all of a sudden a ton of people in, in a city or in a region are starting to list their houses because they want to sell it, it's either because people are seeing that we're hitting the peak or people are having financial difficulties. And now all of a sudden, if the, the market is flooded with housing for sale, people are going to look and say, hey, wait a minute, why should I buy today? I can buy tomorrow. Prices are going to go down. Buyers or sellers then at this point are beginning to lower their asking prices because there's more options on the market, which then can can cause this housing bubble, which again, it's just a, a signal of things that are happening. But this recession that America is heading into, it's needed because of our debt, because of the situation that we have gotten into, because of the the runaway inflation that has been happening. And so as America has begun to pull back on that and try to wrangle in their economy. They're doing so by increasing interest rate, interest rates, which at the same time, what this means for other nations, many other nations have debt. Most all nations have debt and they carry that debt in U.S. dollars, mean, meaning they owe another nation or they owe America money. And that money is owed in U.S. dollars. Now, as the U.S. dollar continues to climb stronger and stronger and stronger and their currencies begin to drop, well, before, if your currency is one-to-one with the U.S. dollar, let's just say hypothetically, and you owe the U.S. government 100 bucks, well, you can take 100 of your currency and give it to them, and the, the score is settled. Well, now all of a sudden your currency falls and their currency rises, the U.S. dollar rises, and now your $100 or reals or whatever it might be is worth less money. So your 100 is now worth 50 U.S. dollars. So now you owe, you owe them 100 U.S. dollars, but you have to come up with 200 of your currency to pay off your 100 debt. And, and this is what's happening on a macro scale, which, which why this matters is now business people and investors across the globe are, are looking for a stable place to put their money. They say, I want to bank my money and my liquidity in something that is going to be stable through this crisis. And right now, the uh, America and the U.S. dollar is the strongest currency, is the strongest economy in, in the world. China is having massive problems. They've had massive problems for years, but they're continuing to have massive problems with, with their own housing crisis, with their own economic crisis. And so you look around, where, where can we put it? Can we put it to the euro? Well, no, they're, they're in the middle of a war. 
There's massive debt in, in the euro and the northern northern countries of Europe are having to bail out southern Europe. Germany bailing out Greece. Can't put it in the pound. They're struggling. So where are you going to put it? Well, you're going to put it in the U.S. dollar. As more and more people begin to put their finances into the strongest currency, the U.S. dollar, it then begins to push the dollar up and other currencies go down. This is a huge problem for any nation that has debt because now it's harder and harder to service this debt. It is, it is good for some people. It's good for Americans, especially who are touring Europe and doing tourism because their dollar will be able to buy more. However, it is disastrous for many other nations. This idea is a theory that is called the milkshake theory. This milkshake theory was coined, where are we? This milkshake theory was coined by Brett Johnson. And he came up with this theory after watching a movie, There Will Be Blood. We have a clip of Brett Johnson here on the show explaining exactly what the milkshake theory is. Uh, there's a scene near the end of the movie where um, this you know, very ruthless oil executive is trying to buy the land next to his because it has oil on it, and the guy just won't sell it to him. And the guy finally just gets so frustrated. He says, you know what? It doesn't really matter whether I own your land or not because all I have to do is stick a – stick a, a, an oil well down into the ground and I can actually suck up the oil, even though it's on your side of the fence. And he references a milkshake. He said, a milkshake. He says, even if you have a milkshake, but I have a long straw and I put my straw in your milkshake, I drink your milkshake. And, you know, when, when I, when I saw that, I, I thought that was a very good analogy for what I see going on uh, over the last couple of years and what I think is going to pick up speed and be even, do, do, be even to a greater extent over the next couple of years. And that, you know, post the post global financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, the world central banks and monetary authorities got together and they, you know, they printed all this different currency and made this what I just kind of call this this currency milkshake of dollars and yens and euros and pounds and reals, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, for, for a number of reasons, I feel like the U.S. has the straw. And uh, for a few years there, we weren't we were actually raising interest rates and that acted as a straw to suck up all the liquidity that the rest of the world was providing. And I think that's largely why you saw the U.S. markets do what they did. But it wasn't just based on interest rates. Interest rates was the primary driver, but not the only driver. And there's a number of other factors, such as, you know, we have the, the deepest um, uh, financial markets in the world. Uh, there's a number, or there's a large amount of U.S. denominated, U.S. dollar denominated debt outside the United States, which acts as demand for the dollar. Um, you know, the U.S. Navy enforces the dollar as the global reserve currency. Um, you know, the rule of law, um, you know, a number of, you know, the, the tax policy, trade policy. There's a number of factors that lead to the U.S. being uh, one of, if not the most uh, hospitable place for foreign capital. And I think all of that acts as a straw, which sucks up the global capital from around the world. And I expect that to actually accelerate over the next couple of years uh, rather than decrease. So that's kind of the, the theory in, in a nutshell. Now, that was all the way back from June 2020. We know how much it has expired since then with further shakings of COVID and then the, the, the economic crisis that we're in. As he mentioned, 
after the 2008 economic crisis and 2000 economic crisis, America rose interest rates, which caused them to be able to suck up all the currency, all the liquidity around the world, strengthening America. And this is happening again as America is raising interest rates. It has, it's needed for America as they're, they're over leveraged and overextended, and they need to do something to deal with runaway inflation to get it back down to 2%, which will cause a recession. It will, it will have a negative impact on the economy, but it's going to also come at the expense of greater economic hardships across the globe. It is coming. We are seeing it. We are already feeling the effects of it. And it truly only is what many people are saying, the beginning of this crisis. Now, as they say, when America sneezes, the world has a cold. And this is exactly why, because of, of, of these currency issues. America is sneezing. America has a cold, really. And as they raise those interest prices, people are looking for places where they can put their money securely. And that is, it is going to cause a lot of problems, a lot of problems across the globe. Uh, the milkshake theory, the dollar milkshake theory, hat tip to El Tamash for that, uh, that good piece of information there. Uh, moving on, an interesting ruling in the United States. We've covered this topic many times on the show as it's very important in the, 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 the importance of free speech specifically when it comes to big tech. And we've seen big tech censor people. We've seen big tech deplatform people based on not necessarily uh, freedom or equality, but saying, hey, this violates what we stand for as a company. We're a private company, and therefore we have the right to moderate speech. Well, because of this, and because of the unique place that social media platforms are positioned, they're saying, hey, we aren't a newspaper. We aren't a publication. We can't be held liable for what Betty Sue or Fatima or uh, Ahmed or Mohammed posts on our websites. We can't be responsible for that because we're not publishing that information. We need to act more like a bulletin board and anyone can post on that bulletin board. However, they then say, but we don't want people to post bad things on that bulletin board. We don't want people to be hateful. We don't want people to post child porn. We don't want people to use the bulletin board to spam people. We don't want to use people to use the bulletin board to, um, to incite violence against people. We want to have a, a safe space, a safe community. Who doesn't, who doesn't want a safe space in a safe community? So, so then there comes a problem that says, well, if you begin to take down posts off that bulletin board, well, now you're a publisher. Now you're curating that content and you get to decide what people in your communities begin to see. And so in order to deal with this problem in a legal manner, the governments, specifically India and America, America, it's section 230 in India, it's article 71, I believe, or 70 or 71. They have said, okay, we will make a new separate category for you. We're going to make a protection for you that you're not a publisher, 
but you have the right to curate some content to take down posts that are uh, damaging or offensive or illegal. You're, you have the freedom to take down posts that we deem legal or that illegal or you deem violates your, your policies so that you make a better experience for the user. That's how it started. It sounds all, all well and good. Uh, you know, I don't want to get spammed on, on any of these platforms. I don't want to get people asking me to, you know, give money to, or take money from the Prince of Nigeria and who knows whatever. I don't want child porn or any pornography, uh, being spammed to me or flooding these platforms. And so there's good argument for it. But now the algorithm kicks in. Once the algorithm kicks in, it moves away from just being a platform and a bulletin board, but now you're able to curate what people and people do and do not see. And, and we've experienced this with people being deplatformed, with posts being shadow banded, with certain ideologies, certain types of posts essentially being downplayed in the algorithm because the company doesn't agree with those philosophies, with those ideas. It didn't, because things didn't agree with science two years ago. Those posts all had little tags at the bottom of it saying, here's a proper way that you ought to think about this issue. Here's a proper thing that you ought to believe. That is moving into publishing. That is now, you, you are a publishing company. Well, this has gone to the courts in America and earlier in May, there was a, a ruling and a lawsuit in Texas uh, called Net Choice versus Paxton. And then it was, it's going up through the courts of America. And just this last week, on September 16th, it went through the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. There's seven, and then there's the Supreme Court. So it's going up through the legal system in America. And uh, this is from The Atlantic, which is uh, an incredibly progressive magazine. So th their their tone of voice is very mm, I would I pretty much disagree with their entire tone of voice and perspective on this, but they do bring up some important points, some of which I've already brought up about how there are some good things to a, a level of curation, curation. There's a good thing to a, a private company being able to say, "Hey, this is illegal. You can't post this on the website, or this is very close to the line of illegal. It could be over it. We are going to take this off of our social media platform. Well, it says earlier this month, the court held a preposterous, upheld a preposterous Texas law stating that online platforms with more than 50 million active users in the United States no longer have, quote unquote, First Amendment rights regarding editorial decisions. What it's saying is, if you have a platform with over 50 million users, you are no longer just a private company. You are what is called a utility. So, for instance, a utility, your phone company, they do not have the permission, at least in America, to censor what you can or cannot say over the telephone. You pick up your telephone and you can call your grandma or Aunt Betsy or, or, or Uncle Al and you can talk about whatever you want. And if you're planning something illegal, the 
phone company will not be held liable because you plan that over their phone network. They are a utility, just like the electric company, just like the the water company. They cannot dis- discriminate who does or does not get electricity or power because they're a utility. They don't have that freedom of speech. The electric company can't say, hmm, I don't agree with this with this organization over here or this political group over here. We are not going to give you electricity. No, they can't do that. That's called discrimination in America. Anywhere in the world, it's called discrimination. But you can't do that and just cut someone's power off because they're a utility. There's not a level of, quote unquote, freedom of speech and say, well, company XYZ doesn't represent our beliefs and therefore we are not going to service that company. Now, here's where it gets tricky. The LGBTQ community has gone to cake makers and photographers and priests and have forced them to say, hey, for, force them by saying, hey, you need to photograph my wedding. You need to take a, uh, you know, make a cake for me. You need to marry me. And these people are saying, no, we believe that's against our faith and against her religion. I'm not going to make you a gay cake. No, I'm not going to photograph your lesbian wedding. No, I'm not going to, I'm not going to marry this trans couple to one another. And no, I'm, I'm just not going to do that because it's against my beliefs and my freedom of speech. That falls underneath the protection of what we consider freedom of speech and freedom of belief to say, no, because I don't want to violate my conscience by servicing you. What the law has deemed currently under Section 230 is that there is some limitations to what you can do, but what this new ruling is saying that if you have more than 50 million active users on a platform like Instagram, like Facebook, like Twitter, like Snapchat, like TikTok, like Reddit, like Wikipedia, you no longer have those rights. You, you no longer can act as a, as a publisher that curates the experience. Now, this has positive and negative implications. Positive, we'll, we'll start there. As we've talked about that many times on the show, these platforms ought to be considered utilities. They, they really do need to be considered utilities because they are curating your experience. It's not like a, a, a podcast where you are able to go and pick whatever podcast that you want to listen to via an RSS feed, and it automatically comes to your phone, and you get to choose that. You get to choose to press play on that. You get to choose to listen to that. When you're in the infinite scroll, you're not being able to choose what you do and don't see. There's no longer the chronological chronological timeline that shows you everything that was posted. They are curating your experience based on what they want you to see and what they think you want to see because they are looking to drive marketing dollars. They make money off of you scrolling. So if you scroll, they make money. So they want to set up an, a system where you are addicted, where you scroll more, where you are plugged in to the matrix called the internet, and they want it to be a safe space where you own nothing and you are happy and you have a drone that flies over to your house, comes through your window and actually feeds you Cheetos as you scroll so that they can sell you stuff. They can sell your attention, your life, energy. Welcome to the internet. 
All that to say, there are good reasons that these platforms ought to be considered utilities because they are functioning as utility. Twitter, that's, it's becoming a utility of society, a place where people gather, connect, they exchange ideas where businesses are on. And if a few massive companies have the ability to say, you know what? doesn't matter if you're the president we don't like you so we're just going to deplatform you ah, you know what you know what we we don't care parlor that you are a platform we're not going to let you have your your servers on our on our your, your computer your programs on our servers we're not going to allow you to be on our app platforms because we don't like you politically what you're doing we just don't so we're just going to decide to shut you down. Go build, go build your thing elsewhere. No, these things have become so large that they're utilities that virtually everyone relies on. And so that's the, the positive side where we really do need to move away from the, a few people curating what we all think and see. But then there's the other side of this where it does limit these companies from being able to take down material that is on the border, borderline illegal. They can still take down things that are absolutely illegal, but it, it moves it into a place where there's legal cases and legal precedents to say, hmm, this is borderline. We're going to have to let it fly. We're going to have to let it stay here. And that can be dangerous. It really can be dangerous. It makes these places not safe places. It makes them not safe places for kids. But guess what? It already wasn't a safe place. It's already not a safe place for kids. Even if they are safe in the content that's out there, they are addictive and they are rewiring our minds. It really, really is. Yeah, that makes sense. In a post-truth society where we've exchanged truth for lies and reason for post-modern irrationality, the absurd finally makes sense. Well, Bill Maher, a, a liberal of liberals, classical liberal, he has increasingly begun to speak out against wokeness and against the uh, the LGBTQLMLP trans agenda, which is destroying people. You know, there there is a, a a difference between condemning a person who is in that and condemning an ideology that is driving that and pushing it on people. And here on this show, we are condemning an ideology that is in the, the airwaves that is being pushed by media that is destroying children's lives. It's being pushed on children, pushed on people and destroying their lives, whether it's subtly or overtly. The suicide rate among the trans community is one of the highest suicide rates in the world. And yet, and yet it's still being pushed as something that's normative and to be celebrated. These are dangerous, dangerous ideologies. Well, Bill Bilmar has a, uh, it's somewhat of a long, long clip, but I found it extremely entertaining. And there's uh, multiple points that I think is worthwhile talking about in this segment. Here's Bilmar. And finally, new rule, you can get creative with a novel, a TV show, or a movie, but history books, that's not supposed to be fan fiction. 
How we teach our kids history has become a big controversy these days, with liberals accusing conservatives of wanting to whitewash the past, and sometimes that's true, sometimes they do. But plenty of liberals also want to abuse history to control the present. And last month, a scholar named James Sweet caught hell for calling them out for doing just that. He criticized a phenomenon known as presentism, which means judging everyone in the past by the standards of the present. It's the belief that people who lived 100 or 500 or 1,000 years ago really should have known better. <laughs> Which is so stupid. It's like getting mad at yourself for not knowing what you know now when you were 10. <laughs> stupid me, spending all that time raising sea monkeys. And who doesn't have moments from your past that make you cringe? Who hasn't said, I can't believe I said that? Good I can't point. believe I wore that. I can't believe I thought that. I can't believe I did that. You ate dirt. <laughs> you wanted to be a Ghostbuster. You shoplifted gum. <laughs> you tried to be a white breakdancer. You... <laughs> you wanted to marry Scott Baio. I read Ayn Rand. <laughs> I smoked. I was into numerology. <laughs> yes, because we hadn't then grown into the persons we would become. And humanity writ large is just the collective version of that. Did Columbus commit atrocities? Of course. But people back then were generally atrocious. People still are generally atrocious. <laughs> Everybody who could afford one had a slave, including people of color. The way people talk uh -oh. about slavery these days, you'd think it was a uniquely American thing that we invented in 1619. But slavery throughout history has been the rule, not the exception. Mm. The Sumerians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, Romans, the Arabs, British, the early Americans, all the way up through R. Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> The Holy Bible is practically an owner's manual for slaveholders. Not really, but... The word slave comes from Slav, because so many Slavic people were enslaved, and they're as white as the Hallmark Channel. <laughs> Who do you think gathered the slaves from the interior of Africa to sell to slave traders? Africans who also kept their own slaves. We're a species prone to making others of our species our I've said it before and I'll say it again. Humans are not good people. Mm. It's true. And the capacity for cruelty is a human thing, not a white thing. Yep. That's the truth, even though it doesn't jibe with the current narrative. But in today's world, when truth conflicts with narrative, it's the truth that has to apologize. Mm. Being woke is like a magic moral time machine where you judge everybody against what you imagine you would have done in 1066 and you always win. Bill makes a couple great points, starting at the end and we'll work backwards. 
we we always look back on the past and say, oh, if I was there, I would have never done X, Y, and Z and fill in the blank. But really, we're doing it today. I mean, if anyone who owns an iPhone, well, you know, the battery, the battery, the cobalt and your, your lithium battery was mined out of a, a mine in the Congo, most likely, using child slave labor. And you and I are benefiting by the fact that we're listening to this. It means that we are in the top, top echelon of the world and we're benefiting from, from modern day slavery still, the clothes that we buy. So we can, we can posture ourselves as holier than thou of our forefathers years past and, and make believe that we are somehow of some, some noble, enlightened time, but people are going to look back on us and scoff. They did what? They let their kids have screens? That's barbaric. Who knows? Who knows what they'll say? I, I do like how he, he points out, and, and this is contrary to what a, a lot of liberals and, and this, maybe it's not liberals, but just a, a movement of what people believe and think, which is that man, mankind is basically good. I'm a good person. You're a good person. We're all good people. We're all basically good. It's like, no, the line of evil runs through each and every one of our hearts. And we can't go back and rewrite history. We can't go back and and, and judge what everyone did a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago and then try to make some recompense for it. And the, even the last point that he was making about the illusions that we live in and that we, we get so offended if someone ever approaches us with a fact or a truth that shatters that illusion. It's a, it's a toxic, it's a destructive ideology. It's, a, it's destructive to live in our minds where we're not actually grounded in reality. But there's this absurdity of post, it's a postmodern reality that says there is no God, there is no truth, there is no objective reality. Everything's just subjective matter. I might not be real. You watching me on the screen or, or listening to me through your earphones or as you drive on the car, in the car, this, that might not be real. I might be an illusion in your head, but I am real. You are real. We live in a real world with real physical matter. That's not just a Maya. That's not just an illusion. That's not just something that's going to pass away and, 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 and flitter away. We're not just going to wake up from some dream. When we die, this is reality. There is a physical world. There are real facts, real truth. But postmodernism says, no, there's not. There's no such thing as morality. There's no such thing as objective reasoning or truth. These are all tools that were made up to oppress you. But truly, they are things that we as the human race have learned and studied and improved upon methods of, of discipline learning to continue to grow that allows us to live in the most amazing time of all of history. Most amazing time. N none of us would, would trade for all the wealth in the world 
to live 150 years ago or even 100 years ago. No, not one of us would go back 150 years, even if we were given billions and billions of dollars. Why? We wouldn't have a running refrigerator. We wouldn't have the global logistics and we wouldn't have the internet. We wouldn't trade it for anything. But this progress has been made because men and women have strove together to further the human race, to further and help people through literacy, through learning, through technology, through worldwide logistics, which has happened because of free markets. But what is happening in this woke wokeism world is it is destroying the lives and it will destroy the nations that fully go on to embrace it. Well, this show is a, a value for value podcast. We do not have massive advertisers here on the show. You're not hearing ads here on the show, but we ask that if you enjoy the show, if you listen and you get value out of it, we just ask that you'd give value back to the show and the value that you get out of the show. And you can do that by visiting lucasrobot.com backslash support. Or if you like the Bitcoin world, you can listen on apps like Breeze or Sphinx or podcast or Podfriend, excuse me, and you can stream your Bitcoins there as you listen. Don't go away with, we have a killer, a killer segment coming up for Weaver and Loom. Welcome back to Weaver and Luma, part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday lives so that we can own our future and weave our destinies. A little bit different. Normally we have a, a quote or something, but I came across this incredible study. And I know this normally this is done in kind of the first segment of the episode, but this incredible study about what happens to our mind when we space out, when we go into that that zoned out space, what happens? Well, a study was done in 2001 by Marcus Reichel, a neurologist at university at the Washington University. He ran an experiment where he had people just stare at an X on the screen and they ran an MRI on their brain as they just zoned out looking at an X on the screen. And as they were focused on this passive task, he wanted to see what would happen to the brain while they did this. What are they thinking about? What areas of the brain begin to light up? And when he did this, he noticed a consistency in brain patterns from all the participants in the study. The, the study reads this, the fact that they were exhibiting similar brain states was not unusual by itself. After all, performing, performing specific tasks means similar regions of the brain will be engaged for each person. However, the unusual thing was that the overlap occurred when participants weren't really doing anything. So when you're not doing something, your brain is doing the same thing as everyone else when they're not doing something. This established a baseline resting state in the scanner and the participants' brains showed a surprisingly amount of similar activity. It was like discovering that a bunch of random computers all featured the very same screensaver. So when we space out, we all have a, essentially a screensaver, if you kids remember those things, that's running in our brain. 
And it's the same one, virtually the same one for everyone. He called this a default mode or a default mode network, as it became to be known. And it evolved, and what's happening when we space out, it involves thoughts about one's identity, replaying memories, theorizing about the intentions of other people, and thinking about the future. This is your mind when you're spacing out or daydreaming. In short, when we're not doing much of anything at all, we tend to be weaving the stories of our lives. When you're not doing anything at all, and you're sitting idle, and your mind is able to wander off, we begin to weave the story of our lives. We begin to think back on events that happened years ago, maybe. We begin to wonder, what was the intention of that, that person? What's, what, what are other people's intentions? We begin to weave narratives. Sometimes those narratives can be true. And sometimes those narratives can just be blatantly false. We have this idea of a narrative, a baseline story in our lives, and we can just begin to believe that, man, when I was, when I was at the coffee shop the other day and my friend walked in and they didn't say hi to me, they, they probably hate me. They, they're probably just mean people, or maybe they just didn't see you. But we begin to weave these narratives, and what, what's, the, what's the intention of this person? And we begin to weave that into who we are in our identity. We begin to, to try to ascertain who are we in this, this world? What, what is our role? What is our identity? And what is our future? How are, you, how are we going to reach that? So there's positives and negatives of this. Study goes on to say our ability to conceive ourselves in relation to others and the world allows us to strategize, predict, and plan against the circumstances that may lead to our downfall, whether that is our social status within the tribe or our actual death. So this is a positive thing. When we're in that idle time, our mind is able to strategize how to best navigate the future in our relationships. This is great. Yet, our ability to engage in self-absorbed daydreaming has drawbacks. For one, thinking about persevering, thinking about per- preserving who we are can manifest as anxiety. In a 2011 study by Harvard, researchers Matthew Killingsworth and Daniel Gilbert found that people engage in mind wandering about 47% of the time. 47% of their time, our minds are wandering off. It is also correlated with unhappiness. The study essentially pinged 2,250 people at random times throughout the day on their phone and asked them what they were doing how they were feeling, and whether they were thinking about what they were doing or thinking about something else. Regardless of the activity, people reported being less happy when their minds were wandering than when they were not. Further research found that meditation interrupted the default mode network as do psychedelics. Meanwhile, walking in nature found to interrupt the depressive rumination that is a hallmark of this network. So they, they do this study where they have 2,250 participants. They get pinged on the phone at random times of the day and say, what are you thinking about? What are you doing? And are you happy? 
And it found that when people were not focused on the task at hand, but daydreaming about something else, oftentimes they, that led them to anxiety. It led them to not being happy. It led them to worrying about their life, worrying about the future, worrying about the past, worrying about other relationships, causing anxiety. This article, this article goes on. The journalist Michael Easter describes another useful feature of the default mode in the comfort crisis. He labeled it the unfocused mode and explained how boredom that produces mind wandering is crucial to creativity and potential survival benefits that prevent us from repeating the same tasks in all the same ways all the time. If you ever had a great idea in the shower, this might ring true. So here's a positive side. Negative side is when your mind is wandering, you can tend to anxiety and worry. But on the positive side is when your mind is wandering, you also can come to breakthroughs and revelations that you just might not have had before. Easter goes on to say, we don't, we don't allow ourselves to unplug, to be bored, and to mind wander. When we don't do that, we lose an ability to come up with creative ideas. We spend 12 hours-ish a day using digital media, he told Daily Beast. By persisting through boredom, resisting the pull of attention, and seeing where our mind takes us, we can come into some deeper insights. And I think there are plenty of antidotes from creatives supporting this. There is research that supports this as well. 20% of creative ideas of writers and physicists that we studied happened not while they were at work or even when they were actively pursuing the problem, but when they were doing something else and their mind naturally wandered to some sort of solution. There's another study. In Schooler's lab, they, they conducted a study, and on average, they found that people were less happy when their mind was wandering. Hmm. There's two sides to this coin, two sides to this knife. We need to have a certain amount of time where we are unplugged, where we're not distracting our minds with everything that's in front of us. We need to give ourselves space to breathe and think in our minds while realizing that overthinking, realizing that, that our unfocused wandering mind tends to anxiety, tends towards anxious thoughts. And we can begin to weave narratives that just blatantly aren't true. And we begin to live in this fantasy world rather than living in reality. But if we don't give ourselves any of that time, we can, we can stunt ourselves because we don't have the ability to have that creative breath, to have that cre creative thought. It, the, the, the article from Daily Beast closes. Uh, quoting Judson Brewer, who is the director of research and innovation at Brown University Mindful Center. And he's researched the link between the default mode, addiction, anxiety, and meditation. And he is not convinced that at the, the previous betrayal of how great the mind's default mode is, the, the betrayal that, oh, if you're just disconnected and let your mind wander, you're going to come to some amazing creative uh, revelation. He's like, no, that's not how it works. But Brewer describes 
activating the default mode as a tendency to get caught up in a contracted state of mind, meaning a mind that is narrowly focused on something while ignoring the sensory information around it. For example, when you have a creative idea, your mind often recognizes that brilliance and the default mode is activated. But that's not actually about the creative idea itself, Brewer told the Daily Beast. It is about you getting caught up in your own ego. You start to claim the, claim the creative idea, defend it, doubt it, get paranoid about someone stealing it, and then the, act, the ego actually becomes a hindrance. From Brewer's perspective, happiness, curiosity, and creativity all come from a more expansive state of mind, one in which the default mode is quieted, the ego is reduced, and we cease to impede the flow of experience with the dam of identity. Meaning, if we allow too much of our identity to get wrapped in our worrying about, uh, which is called idle thoughts, worrying about what so-and-so said and playing these conversations in our head, we begin to weave these narratives that can actually be ultimately destructive, which leads us to our closing video, uh, a video by uh, Jordan Peterson, which this might at first seem disconnected, but it definitely uh, is connected. Here's Dr. Jordan Peterson. I've read a lot of comments from atheists in my YouTube comment sections on my biblical lectures. I've probably read at least hundreds of them and maybe thousands of them, but at least hundreds. And one of the things that has struck me continually is that many of the people who become atheists are reaction, are reactionary. And I don't mean that in a denigrating sense. A huge proportion of people who are stridently atheistic were hurt very badly by people who purported to be religious when they were young. And I think that also applies to Dawkins, by the way. Uh, I've seen some, some evidence for that in his public utterances. And so you have people who've been terribly betrayed by, what, by the agents of what was supposed to be the best. And so they carry that utter bitterness with them, that ultimate betrayal. Because I think there isn't anything worse in some sense than being betrayed by people who claim to be acting, let's say, in Christ's name. I mean, how could anything be worse than that? And so then they're driven to this atheism and they're so afraid then again to reestablish a new faith because they've been hurt so badly that they're willing to suffer this purgatorial drought of vision rather than to put themselves up on the chopping block one more time. Mm. Dr. Jordan Peterson, again, it, it seems a little too disconnected ideas where he's talking about someone being actually hurt, uh, actually abused or betrayed as uh, normally a young person or a child by someone of faith or someone in the religious community, having religion shoved down upon them, forced upon them. Uh, it, it truly is a sense of betrayal and it causes people to say, well, if this is what you say God is like, if this is the way that people who believe in God, who believe that they have some moral standard and some moral superiority, if this is what you're like, well, then I want nothing of it. And I, I don't think there is a God at all. And the, where I see the correlation is there are times where real things happen to us, real wounds, real betrayal real pain, real abuse, real suffering. And we can move to the space of idle-mindedness and 
reflecting on it to a point where we begin to weave a narrative around someone else's actions, but then we weave that narrative onto who we are and who God is. We weave that narrative onto what the world is based on the isolation action of actions of, of one or multiple individuals. We then say the world is such and such a way, and I fit in such and such a place in the world, and this is the character and nature of God based on my experiential knowledge of reality, my antidotal experiential knowledge of reality. But the problem is you have not, and I have not experienced all of reality just because I don't have the experiential knowledge of seeing a black swan fly over my house doesn't mean that there's not a black swan. Just because something has always or has been in my experience a norm in the past does not mean that that is the reality of all the world or that that is my ultimately, ultimately my only reality I'm doomed to. And so where this connects is that this, the sinister effects of the idle mind is that when we get wrapped into those idle thoughts and we're weaving these stories, uh, we, we used to say here on the show, if you, if you own your story, you can own the future. Uh, obviously, we've moved away from that catchphrase a little bit because I felt those, it was just too new agey. It was, it was just too new agey, and really it's not true. We can't just make up a new story about ourselves. That's, that, that story about ourselves has, has to be affirmed by something or someone. For, for us to be able to say this is something that's actually true. And however, at the same time, the stories that we then weave about our lives and ourselves, whether it's based on truth or based on not truth, if we become bound up in those narratives, if we become bound up in those stories, we can truly harm ourselves. However, if we don't go and look at them at all, if we don't go back and say, wait a minute, maybe, maybe the story that I'm believing about my life isn't actually truth, we will then be hindered from being able to strategize and actually build the future that we want to reach the place that we want. And we will, we will stay stuck in the same rut going around the mountain again and again and again for 40 years for the rest of our lives. And I don't want that for you. And I don't want that for me. And that requires hard work. It requires 360 feedback. It's re- it requires people telling us things that we don't like to hear. It requires looking into the, the dark and foggy places of our lives to face the ugliness, the ugly reality of each of, of our lives, the things that we struggle with, the things that we're falling short in. That's painful. And, and it's difficult because facing those monsters, well, they're monsters in our lives because really we don't know how to face them often, but we must. That's all for today's episode. I hope that you go out this week and you think, you, you reflect on the, the, the stories and the truths that you tell yourselves. However, actively engage your mind at the work at hand. Don't let yourselves just wander enlist to and fro being tossed by every other wave instead root and ground yourself in truth because that is how we will truly own our futures